We finished the Torah, and we're starting over again. And that's good news. The bad news is I taught you everything I know. So I, uh, I'm thinking I'm going to start expanding now, because I don't really have anything left to teach you. So I found some extra etrogs here, and I thought I would, I don't know, do some juggling for you and some other things today. Genevieve didn't even know that I could juggle. I used to be able to juggle in my teens, I learned how. So I'm just going to do a juggling act for you here today instead. Here, I need to warm up. That was your teens. Yeah, that was in my teens. See, so I'm going to juggle this morning instead. Yeah, see, so, uh, yeah. So, I don't know, I, I don't really have anything left to teach. I also, I thought I would do a little uh, act with my, this is actually a coyote call, but it works well as a, a clown nose, see? Anyway, no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking because we only started studying together on Parshat Lech Lecha. So I have two more parshas in which I can teach you some stuff. And then you're just going to have me juggling and doing clown acts. Just joking. I just thought I would try and do something to uh, break out of the mold this morning. Those lemons smell really good too. Um, no, no I, I do have a couple objectives I wanted to share with you all with regards to, uh, with regards to our teaching in this upcoming year. Uh, one thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be shortening it a little bit. Now, for this parsa, we will be. The next one, because we're, it's, we've never covered it, we may do a regular hour or so. And after that, I would like to keep it a little shorter. Uh, we want to stay fresh on Shabbat mornings. Um, things like that. Um, but here, here are a couple objectives that I have in, in teaching in the upcoming year. I, I want to keep, I want to keep our focus practical. I want to keep it intensely practical because, uh, you know, the, the Jewish approach to the Torah is how, how are you, how are you applying this to your life? How, how do you do life? And, uh, that's something that I appreciate. I appreciate those, um, those highly esoteric teachings. I appreciate those, those deep textual insights. Um, I, I love history, you know, but when it really comes down to it, how's the rubber gonna meet the road? Um, here's an example of that. Yeshua in Matthew 5. What did he say about greatness in the kingdom? A greatness in the kingdom is quantified by how we apply the commandments, the mitzvot to our lives. So that is something that will be, uh, that will continue to hit this year. Practical applications. Uh, we're going to be examining that today in the book of James, Yaakov. Uh, he was really strong on that point too, wasn't he? Um, the second thing, this is an area that I want to continue to grow in. Uh, as a teacher, I really look up to Yeshua because he was a great teacher. I look up to him in, in, in that specific area. And uh, something that I noticed is it says he never talked to the crowds without giving a, a, a parable. You know, Yeshua as a rabbi was a famous storyteller. Uh, he was very skilled in the art of telling parables. Uh, it appears that he would used object lessons. And, and that's something that I want to grow in too. And that's something that I want to grow in as a congregation. So if any of you ever... You maybe you're going through the week, you study through the parsha ahead of time, and you just think of a, an object lesson or a, or a parable or or some story just comes to mind. You know, uh, bring that. Give me a call if you want, and and we'll make sure that we include that because uh, you know I I want to come together as a congregation and have have different contributions as as maybe uh, we're we're inspired with some creativity. Hey, um, 
I, I'm a creative person, but I think if we, co- if we collect our creativity together and pool that, we're going to even have more fun together, and we are going to learn more meaningful lessons. So, you know, here are a couple of things we could, uh, we could try and include in this next year. Think about as we go throughout the week. Object lessons, skits, charades. Any of you like playing charades? Yeah? Yeah, when you, you do an act and then you have to guess what it is. Uh, stories, even jokes. Yeah? I think Yeshua, from, from, you know, appearances, he incorporated some humor in his, his, uh, teaching. So those are, those are some things that I invite you in this upcoming year to, to uh, chip in with. And, uh, and I'm gonna try and do some chipping in also. Uh, the third thing that I really wanna do in this upcoming year in my teaching is exalt Mashiach. Uh, Yeshua said that when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. I, I think, I, I do think in part that was in reference to his crucifixion. Uh, you know, as a result of his crucifixion, he was counted worthy for, uh, for people from all nations and languages to, uh, to, uh, to become his disciples. Worthy as the lamb that was slain, we read in Revelation. Um, who, who purchased people, men for himself, with his blood from every tribe and nation. So, that, that's something else I want to see. I just want to see Yeshua lifted up in our midst. And I'm gonna be sharing something interesting about that from the book of James today also. Yeah. So let's look at the book of, uh, Bereshi, Genesis together. We're gonna crack open the first parasha. Ah, this is a challenging parasha. Because it covers almost a third of human history to date. It covers the first approximately 1700 years. <laughs> Maybe that's a little closer to a quarter. But no matter how you look at it, that's a lot of material to cover, isn't it? So we're not going to be, we're not going to be breaking down all of it minutely. Uh, I want to focus on a couple key themes. I want to focus on the theme of marriage that comes up in this parasha. Um, what it teaches us about our marriage to Mashiach. Um, also what it teaches us about physical marriage. And, uh, those, those dynamics. I also want to look at the mitzvot in this parasha. It's the, it's kind of cool. The very first parasha, and you already have a couple of mitzvot, a couple of commandments coming up. And those first ones are, uh, have, I think, uh, particularly broad ramifications. So that's, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, this parasha starts with the creation week. It narrates the fall. It highlights a couple luminaries like Enoch, uh, Abel also, righteous individuals. And uh, then it begins to highlight an up-and-coming luminary named Noah, who finds favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And it's a bit of a cliff- cliffhanger. That's where it ends. It's like you have these premonitions that the, the Almighty is having a hard time putting up with the human race. And then Noah finds favor in his eyes, and uh, then it leaves you hanging. So I guess we'll have to see what happens next week, hey? <laughs> Unless you sneak home and study the scriptures all by yourself. Yeah. So let's talk about mitzvot. Let's talk about commandments from this parasha firstly. Uh, Bereshit, Genesis chapter 1. We have the very first commandment given to humankind. In 1 verse 28, he simply says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the animals, etc. So, that's it. Now here's the interesting thing. How is this, uh, how is this prefaced, this mitzvah? It says, Elohim blessed them, and Elohim said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Now this is the very first commandment, and we learn something from this. This is along the lines of what you call like the law of first mention in, in hermeneutics, in your interpretation of scripture. When something is first mentioned, when you have a first dynamic, it, it carries extra weight. There are special ramifications. And this is an example. What we learn here is, 
Every commandment in the Torah is a blessing. You could read that as saying, and Elohim blessed them and he said to them, you shall thus and so. And Elohim blessed them and he said to them, you don't do this or that. And uh, so as, as we read through the Torah, we can remember, every time he gives a commandment, he's, that is a blessing. According to Paul, every commandment is good. And uh, what a blessing too that he not only gives us commandments, but he empowers us through his Ruach HaKodesh, his Holy Spirit, to actually carry them out. <laughs> to live in accordance with them. Uh, we read that in Romans chapter 8. Those who live in accordance with the, uh, the Spirit, they uh, fulfill the dictates of the Torah. And of course, we'll be delving into that in this upcoming year also. You know, some people, they kind of cast the law of God in a negative light. They, they, they would even suggest that it's a curse that Messiah came to redeem us from. And yes, there are curses in the Torah and the book of Deuteronomy for those who break them. But the Torah in and of itself is not a curse. The law of God is a great blessing. Every commandment we learn is a blessing. Yeah. So that's the, that's the first thing that we observe here. Um, here's a question for you. What was the master's favorite title for himself? Did he, he, did he usually refer to himself as the son of God, or the savior of the world, or the Mashiach of Israel? What was his favorite term for himself? The son of man. Yeah, Ben Adam in Hebrew. Baranos in, in Aramaic. Why was Yeshua so fond of calling himself that? The son of Adam. I think perhaps he just wanted people to understand that he he was a human, that he related very closely to people's humanity. Um, that could be. Uh, I know uh, Shaul really really tapped into that in Romans six. He pointed out that Adam was a type of him who was to come. Um, also in First Corinthians fifteen, Shaul explains that Yeshua is actually the second Adam. So the, the, these things about Adam, they're also very closely connected with some things about Yeshua. Um, here's something notable. It says in verse 27, Elohim created Adam in his own image. In the image of Elohim, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we notice something here. Adam isn't only male, as in a man. Adam is male and female together, as in man and woman together. This comprises Adam. This comprises, uh, like, um, full person, personhood or humanity. Yeah. So the question is, how does this concept of male and female apply to the Mashiach? Um, here, here, here's, a, here's a thought along those lines. Just like Adam and Chava were blessed and charged with reproducing themselves, filling the earth, ruling, could it be that Yeshua and his bride are charged with that same mitzvah, reproducing themselves, filling the earth, ruling? Yeshua as the second Adam, and uh, and we as his bride too. I, I I think I think that's highly probable. That's that's what I get out of that. Um, what did Yeshua say? Go into all the world. It kind of sounds like fill the earth, doesn't it? Um, what did Yeshua say? Oh, so he said, yeah, go into all the world. What did he say? Cast out demons. I think that the parallel in these uh, early chapters would be where it says, subdue the earth and rule. Uh, what did Yeshua say about casting out demons? If I cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wow. So we can just, we can just hear those, uh, those parallels there. So we, we could say that the first mitzvah in the Torah pertains to human sexuality and reproduction. What does the second mitzvah in the Torah pertain to. <laughs> we see this in uh, Genesis 2.17. 16, sorry. 
It's about eating. <laughs> from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Wow, eh? So the second mitzvah relates to the human diet and appetite. And of course, uh, the Torah goes on in the next several books to flesh out these basic concepts. Uh, we read especially in Leviticus and Deuteronomy of permissible and forbidden sexual unions and of permissible and forbidden dietary content. So we see these concepts go all the way back to the first two chapters of Genesis. This is uh, very deep in the human psyche. Uh, then in Genesis 1.17, we read the result of breaking this first mitzvah. 1.17, he says, Mot tamut, in Hebrew, uh, you will surely die, is how it reads in English. Uh, what, it's, what it literally says, like, mot means dying. It's in the infinitive uh, case. And then tamut is you will die. So what it literally says in Hebrew is, dying, you will die. And that's how in Hebrew you say, you will certainly die. It's really emphasizing a point. But I think maybe it's saying something else here too. Maybe it's, maybe it's an insightful comment on uh, what happens when our lives become totally absorbed in, in the physical world. It's like a living death. It's like ongoing, dying, you will die. So you're dying until you're dead. You know what I'm saying? And uh, you know what? Anyone who has wrestled with depression, anyone who has ever had suicidal thoughts, knows what I'm talking about. There, it is like you are dying within, and uh, if something doesn't change, then you are going to experience a physical death as the ultimate result. And uh, that, that's, that's predicted all the way back in the, in the Torah. And uh, thank God, Yeshua came to give us life. <laughs> yeah. Okay, here's a question for you. When was the last Shabbat? When was the last Sabbath? Yeah, it was last Saturday. <laughs> that's correct. Now here's the question. When was the first Shabbat? That's right, it's the seventh day of in, in time, essentially. It was the very first Saturday in world history. Um, what does this teach us? Saturday is a day, according to the Torah, that is especially blessed by God. It is holy, separate from other days, set apart. And uh, I'm preaching to the choir on this one. But you know, it's just, it stands out so clearly that from Genesis 1 and 2, God blessed the seventh day of the week. God set the seventh day of the week apart. And no evidence in the New Testament, early, early church history, there's no evidence that Messiah or his apostles changed the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. The, the seventh day of the week just wasn't changed to the first day of the week. That is mathematical insanity. You can't change something that's seventh to something that's first. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's still the seventh day of the week. It's still blessed and holy. And here's a question. Why do we observe Shabbat? You know, as I see it, like the, the heart of our faith life, the, uh, the engine of discipleship is imitating Elohim, God, and imitating His Messiah. And uh, who is the very first person to observe the Sabbath? The Almighty was the very first person to observe the Sabbath. So, you know, when we're, do, when, we're do, when we're doing this, we're doing it in imitation of Him. <laughs> he liked it so much, He made it for us too. Shabbat was made for Adam. That's true. It does show who your allegiance is with. A sign, right? Wow. <laughs> Here's a... That's right. It's a sign that He sanctifies us. A 24-hour sign. 
here, here's a Hebrew insight uh, from uh, Bereshit chapter 1 verse 10. Um, you, you know how in the Torah, okay, how many of you have heard of doing a mikvah? I assume we're all familiar with that concept. Um, you know, in Christian terms, it's it's when you baptize yourself or you get baptized, right? However, in Christian terms, that only happens, you know, uh, at the time of your profession of faith. But that whole concept of immersion in water is is thoroughly and patently Jewish. And uh, if you practice the Torah, then this is something that you don't just do as a one-time profession of your faith. This is something that you do as a regular part of your life. There are just times in your life when you immerse in water. And uh, the place of immersion in water in Hebrew is called a mikvah. Right? So you go to the mikvah, you immerse yourself in the mikvah. Uh, the old synagogue building here in Prince Albert, where Beit Yaakov used to uh, gather on Shabbats, I'm sure they have a mikvah in that building, like uh, you know a pool, essentially where you can where you can do immersions. I would like to I would like to know if there's one there. That would be interesting if we could somehow rejuvenate that. But whatever the case may be, um, I could show you. It's across from where the Christian bookstore used to be, just across the street to the west, white building. Yeah, it used to be a martial arts uh, facility also. So anyway, often that's called doing a mikvah. And, uh, you know, because you go to the mikvah. Um, the very first mention of mikvah is in Bereshit chapter 1, verse 10. I thought you would find this interesting. 1 verse 10, it says, Elohim called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And Elohim saw that it was good. And uh, what it says there in Hebrew is, and the mikvah of the waters he called seas. So uh, it's this concept of gathering and uh, mikvah. It's it's a fascinating word because of its uh, because of the other places where it turns up in Hebrew. Like, how how many of you know the term tikva in Hebrew? Yes, uh, the Israeli national anthem, hatikva, the hope. Well, that's from the same root. Uh, another word is kavana. How many of you know the Hebrew word kavana? When you daven, when you pray, you pray with kavana. You pray with uh, with intent. Right? You don't just rattle words off and not think about it. You pray with intent of the heart. And that's called kavanah. It's your intention. And, uh, w- what's the connection between these, th- with, between these things? Like, a body of water where you immerse, hope, and intent in, in prayer. Well, the, the, uh, the related concept there is gathering. There's a gathering of waters. When you hope you are gathering yourselves to something, um, when you pray with intent, you are gathering all of your focus, your mental powers, the emotions of your heart. You're gathering those towards the Almighty as you, as you pray to Him. Um, th- this is the idea. So uh, I just thought you'd... That, that's your, that's your uh, freebie Hebrew lesson of the day. So you have mikvah, you have tikvah, and you have kavanah. And uh, they're all from the same root. Yeah. So here's a question. Yeah, this is, hopefully this is all nice and practical for us here. In uh, Genesis 1 verse 14, we learn why the sun and the moon were created. <laughs> why were they created? Yeah, to give us light. That's very practical. Times and seasons. Okay, so seasons like spring, summer, winter, and fall, right? Yeah, seasons. No, what, what's the Hebrew word there? Festivals. That is correct. Okay, appointed times, yes. Isn't that... Just stop and think about that for a second. I mean, before the fall of humanity, before there was an agricultural cycle, before before there was even a promise that the Mashiach would come as a redeemer and crush the head of the serpent, the, the, the moon was created for Moedim. 
for specific appointed times. It's almost like when Elohim created the world, he had these, these appointed times on the biblical calendar. He had them in mind. Well, he created the sun on the fourth day, and he created light on the first day, and it also says he created the stars on the fourth day. So all of those galaxies out there. <laughs> it's so terse, eh? He created the stars too. Like, that, that is, that is the, the narrative for like the, the mass out there of galaxies. <laughs> wow. And here's something. It's just, it's notable too how the concept of a biblical day beginning at evening at sundown is right there in Genesis 1, eh? Like from the very start. Yeah, absolutely. And the moon too. It's notable. It says he created the moon for the Moedim. Um, you know, regrettably in the 300s, when the community of Israel was forced to fix the calendar, it's close to the lunar cycles, but it's no longer exactly on the lunar cycles, eh? And it's slowly drifting too. We talked about that in our Sinking with the Creator of the Universe teaching. Um, if this continues, and you know, over the course of a couple thousand years, we're going to be doing Pesach in the middle of summer. Uh, this is a problem. <laughs> you know, and so that... Of course, is why the Sanhedrin has this so high, or the nascent Sanhedrin has it so high on their priority list. Yeah. Here's a, here's one more practical element from this parasha along the lines of imitating God. In Genesis 3.21, we read, Yahweh Elohim made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And uh, traditional Jewish commentary has pointed out that he was the one who first clothed the naked. And that is why it's uh, later commanded to uh, to clothe the naked. And uh, when you think about it, what does clothing represent? Uh, clothing is like the nearest element of of shelter that we have. You know, housing is an extension of that. Um, perhaps clothing represents our physical needs in general. Um, we just see that from the very beginning, Yahweh, even after these people like... Like, broke his, broke the only mitzvah he gave them, and I don't know, I don't know how he works, but maybe that broke his heart to a certain degree, I don't know. But, um, even after this happened, like, he still showed kindness to them. He still took care of their needs. Even after, in some regards, they allied themselves with the arch enemy of the creator of the universe, and maybe they made themselves his enemy to a certain degree. He still showed kindness to them. He was still generous. Maybe that's why Yeshua said, love your enemies. You know, we, we, we see this, we see this element also in the early chapters of Genesis. Um, imitating him. Uh, here, here, here's the opposite of, of that, that kindness, that care, that generosity. In, uh, 4 verse 9, uh, we have Elohim confronting the first murderer in hermit, uh, in human history. And, uh, with this question, where is your brother? And uh, what does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? And uh, you know what? Each one of us, we have this potential to be life-giving or to be life-taking, eh? Maybe not. we're not going to go out and gun someone down or stab someone in the back, but we have the capability in our, in our, our daily lives to take people's lives, to be a life-sucker or to be a life-giver, hey? And uh, it's, it's the voice of the life-taker that says, I'm not responsible for this person. Why, you know, that person's not my brother in Messiah. That person, I'm not related to them in the family of God. Nope, I'm not responsible for them. That, 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 you know, if, if those are our attitudes at any time, then that can be a danger signal that we may be, we may be falling under the wrong attitude 
or working in the wrong spirit. But when we have a spirit that says, yes, that person is my brother in Mashiach. Yes, that person is my sister in the family of God. I am responsible for that person. I'm going to watch out for and guard that person. You know, we're, we're moving in the right direction. We're walking in the, the opposite direction of uh, where Cain was going. I don't feel like we exemplify that here, like Cain's attitude, but I have seen that attitude in the Messianic Jewish community. You know, I, I have seen that in Hebrew roots people, where you just, you focus on your differences, and you divide, and you, and you think that you are more righteous than other people, so therefore they can't be a part of my life. And I just think, that sounds like Cain. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not my brother's keeper. I, I, I'm not here to be responsible for my sister. You know, I disown myself from the rest of the family. Like, that, that's a dangerous place to go. And uh, maybe that's why the authors of the, the Brit Chadashah, you know, continually said, let's encourage each other to keep gathering. You know, let's, uh, let's stay fervent in our love for each other. Let's encourage each other every day, and all the more as we see the day approaching, eh? So, uh, I, I want to be, be a congregation that flies that banner high, that, that brings warmth and life to the, to the Messianic community on a broader level. And I, I thank God I feel that. I feel that with us here. And I want to grow in that too. Yeah. Um, the other, the other significant area in this parsha that uh, keeps coming up is the uh, the uh, the theme of marriage, and we we learn in Bereshit chapter one verse twenty six that Adam, which is all of humanity, including you and me, is a, is a picture of God, and that that word there is Telam. It's actually like it's the modern Hebrew word for a picture, a photograph, eh? And uh, Here's something interesting, like we learned, that wasn't just man, that was man and woman as one. Uh, perhaps that was even man and woman in marriage. It could, it, could it be that there's something about marriage that is a picture of Yahweh? Like a very, a very uh, clear picture. Yeah, I think so. I kind of wonder if maybe that isn't why marriage is so under the gun in our culture. Why marriage is so attacked in uh, legislative Islam assemblies, whether it be Canada or the United States or Europe. Uh, could it be that that's why there's just so much, there's this growing confusion in that area because marriage is, a, is like, an, it's the image of God in a way that we as individuals aren't. You know, and maybe for that reason it's just so important to be encouraging each other, praying for each other uh, on a broader level in terms of, uh, in the body of Messiah. You know, even a, I drove down to a, a weekend seminar in Colorado. You remember when I drove down this spring. It was a, you know, a husband's conference. And, uh, I really needed that. I, I appreciate that there are, there are men, you know, in this case it was Ed Harris and Scott Diffender for who are organized this, se- organizing this seminar based on Shalom Arush's book, The Garden of Peace. And it was like, wow, we need more of this. You know, cause this is an area that, that so comes under fire. So I, I, we see that right from Genesis 1, that, uh, that such is the case. Here's, here's something notable in the Hebrew that you would notice in the English too. In uh, Genesis 2, verses 1 and 2, it uses a verb twice. Um, where it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished or completed in uh, all their array. It uses that same, the first time it says, vaihulu in Hebrew, the second time it says, vaihal. So it uses the same verb um, here's the interesting thing. This is also the root of the Hebrew word for bride. Does anyone tell me what the Hebrew word for bride is? Kala, that's correct. We are uh, going to be having a chatan and a kala in mid-November in the form of Colin and Hannah. So Hannah's going to be the kala, right? And here's the interesting thing. It's the same word as the word for completion, 
the heavens and the earth were kalad, you could say they were completed. And it's also the same, same root as the Hebrew word for all, kol. We probably all know that one. We do now. Kol, right? Um, everything's okay. Kol beseder, right? Um, there are lots of examples of that. All of us, kulanu, it's from the root kol. So uh, what, what does this teach us? There, like I, we could probably just contemplate that one thing for an hour, hey? But what, what we see here is from the very beginning, like at the creation of the heavens and the earth, we see a God who is thinking about the bride. Um, perhaps, perhaps the universe was uh, designed as the, the home for the future bride, as the stage for the drama that was going to play out between the bride and uh, the bridegroom who was going to come for her. You know, we... That, that's how a romantic reading through the first chapters of Bray Sheet would, uh, would take it. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Maybe that teaches us something about brides in general too. There's something about a bride that completes her husband. There's something about a bride that is designed to be her husband's all. You know, we have these connected words, eh? Um, Adam. In uh, 2 verse 15, Adam had a mission in the garden. It was a twofold mission. It was to, uh, how does it read in your, in your translation? Here it says to, uh, to cultivate and keep it. And uh, I think the relationship actually between Adam and the garden is similar to the relationship between uh, husband and wife. Uh, maybe this is just something I'm learning about. And the Hebrew words, I really appreciate the Hebrew words for this. The Hebrew word for cultivate is la'avda. Everybody say la'avda. It's the, it's the word to serve. Adam was placed in the garden to serve the garden, to work for the garden, to cultivate the garden. Could it be that there's a role where husbands do that in their wife, for their wives also? Just like Mashiach serves the bride. Um, what's the other word here? The other word is, uh, Everybody say, L'shomra. What's, what's that one, Mike? I think you might have said it. Yeah. Yeah. To guard, to protect, to keep. So again, we have that, we have that same idea. Um, it's a picture of Yeshua in us. It's a picture perhaps of a, a husband's role also. Uh, in 2.23, uh, Adam says to Chava that she is etzem me'atzemai uvesar mivsari, a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, um, like, what does bone represent? I, I hope there's something deeper here than just a, a physical application like, wow, he took some of the stuff that I made of and he, he made this woman, you know? Like, I, I wonder on a deeper level what it's saying, on a soul level. Um, what, what, what could bone represent? I think bone could represent identity, uh, yourself, your very essence. Your bone is at the core of your being, really. And uh, that, that term comes up in Hebrew also when it talks about, like, the self-same day. It says, you know, ba'etzim hayom hazeh would, uh, would be an example. So here's here's what maybe we could hear Mashiach saying to us as his bride also. He could maybe he's saying my identity is wrapped up in you, my bride, and your identity is wrapped up in me. The bone, the concept of identity at the core of what you are. Uh, maybe that's what he's saying to us. Maybe he's saying, I love you as my very self, your essence of my essence, your substance of my substance. You are part of me and I am part of you. In Hebrew, this, this phrase, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this is what it connotes. This is, this is what we hear Mashiach saying to the bride as the second Adam. This is what we hear the first man saying to the second, uh, the first woman. You know, 
If you're ever like at a loss for what to write in a card, say to your wife, just go and think about this phrase, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And you know what? You're going to get something really meaningful out of that. And uh, you're going to be right in, right in line with, uh, with Adam from the beginning. So look no further than Adam's first words if you need some affirming words for your spouse. Um, I want to talk for this about, you know, Adam, you see like Adam had some real triumphs already. He had some points where he just shone and Adam had some struggles too, all the way back in the first couple of chapters. Um, specifically, uh, you, you look at the male side of Adam, the man, uh, Genesis 3 verse 1, enter the enemy. There is an enemy in the garden. And uh, here's the question. When Eve was being accosted by the serpent, where was Adam? Uh, it could be that he was right there. In verse 6, it says that she uh, gave to the man who was with her, Ima. Um, you know, it, 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 it's hard to tell if that means he was right there at, at her shoulder or if he was, if he was just, you know, with her in the garden, whatever. But in either case, uh, this was like, uh, Adam's first big failure. <laughs> and I think it's something that males per- perhaps especially have wrestled with ever since. I know that I have. Um, either Adam is just standing there watching this thing happen, or he's gone. And either case isn't, doesn't look very good. Um, maybe somewhere else in the garden, you know, absent. Uh, maybe Adam was on a business trip. Uh, maybe was he was busy watching football. Uh, maybe he was out for a beer with his buddies. Uh, maybe he was at another church elders meeting. Or maybe he was gone to a Bible study. I mean, Adam was gone somewhere. We don't know where he was, but he was... Or maybe he was just like... Maybe he was just standing there thinking about his own stuff while this was happening, you know? Golfing. <laughs> Maybe he was golf. Well, yeah, like the park, hey? I'm, there, I'm sure there was a golf course in, in, in paradise there, yeah. What we see here though is that like from the beginning, Adam, Adam, he was either absent or he was disengaged. And males often struggle with that ever since. I, I know I have. You know, like, Maybe, maybe I seem, maybe I seem like a pretty engaged present person, but that has come over time, eh? Like, I, I, that's an area where, even in my family line, that has not been a strength of some males in my, in my family, hey? And, but that's an area that the father's really challenged me in. You know, that's an area where he's really showed me that he wants to come and change me through the power of his Holy Spirit and make me a man who is present to my family, who is present to my community, who is engaged when sometimes I just want to run <laughs> or I just want to like withdraw into my turtle shell and like weather the storm and just wait till it's over, you know, or whatever. But uh, that man, that's challenging. Uh, he, he challenges me with that regularly. Hey, so, um, Hey, goes all the way back to Adam. It's just part of the package deal, I guess. Um, maybe on a sidebar here too, maybe we can learn from this uh, Genesis three, like not to dialogue with the enemy. Uh, I think it's better to just refute and rebuke the enemy or ignore him and walk away. But like, don't dialogue with him as if he had deserved an intelligent answer. Maybe that was Hava's first mistake. Uh, Satan may be intelligent, but of all the beings in the cosmos, he also displays the highest level of insanity. And he does not deserve an intelligent response sometimes. Um, to end on a high note though, in classic Hebraic tradition, after the fall, we see Adam naming his wife Hava. Um, Jewish tradition has pointed out that this was a very good act on his part. It was kind of like him saying, it's kind of like him giving her a name that was affirming, that was encouraging, that was saying, you know what, even though we just totally blew it and we fell, you are the mother of all the living. You know, kind of focusing on the good. And uh, I appreciate that. Chava. Um, Well, like, Chai is life. Chaya is uh, like a living, living being. So Chava is related to that, yeah.
And of course, that's translated Eve in English. Um, wow, this is some rich stuff. And we have, you know, let's, let's, uh, let's talk for a minute about relationship. Not on a human level, but a relationship with, uh, with the Almighty. Uh, in 2 verse 9, we see that uh, the first humans had a choice of two trees that they could eat from. Um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or the tree of life. And when I, when I think about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think that is a tree that we can still eat from today. I think, uh, maybe some of, some, you know, there's this cut of humanity, maybe you could say it's the religious cut, and they're, they're more focusing on the good side of that tree. The tree of the knowledge of good. So, you know, be a good person. Uh, do good. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that warps into legalism, or it turns into dead religion that is entirely humanistic and has nothing to do, actually, to do with God. Um, and then, of course, you have the flip side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the evil side, uh, lawlessness, secularism. Um, and, of course, there's a lot of that in this world, too. The problem with the good side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is it's still dead. Um, you know, it's about life. L'chaim, right? It's the tree of the knowledge of life. Yeshua didn't just come to say, you know what, uh, try to be a good person. You know, work a little harder. Yeshua came to bring our dead spirits to life. To Him, to each other, to ourselves. Yeah, that's the gospel. Um, it says that after humanity fell, there was this way, there was this derech to the tree of life, and it was blocked. And then... When Yeshua comes, what does he say he is? He says he is the, the way. He is the derech. This is the first instance of the term derech is in this parasha. And what did Yeshua say? Juxta, right next to where he's talked about being the way, the derech. What did he say he was? I am the way and the truth and the, the life. Yeah. So you can just see this, this pathway to the Eitz Chaim, the tree of life. It's being restored in Mashiach. And, uh, here's, here, here's an insight from, uh, Traditional Jewish liturgy. We don't we don't do this in our synagogue at this time, but you know we certainly could at some time. But uh, after the readings, you have a, a guy in the synagogue. He usually has to be a pretty big guy uh, because he takes the he takes the sefer Torah, the Torah scroll, and he uh, hoists it up, turns around and hoists it up so that everyone can see the the, the passage that was read. And then one of the things that's sung is Eitzchayim He Lemachazikim Ba, like um, a, a a tree of life is she. To all who take hold of her. Yeah. So, you know, in, in the Jewish understanding, the Torah is an element of that tree of life. And that's something that traditional Jewish people come in contact with regularly. I just love how Yeshua said, He is the way to that tree of life. He is, he is our connection to the Torah, the living, the living Torah. Um, in 2.24, Genesis 2.24, we uh, we read about Adam and Chava uh, cleaving to each other, Adam to Chava, and uh, the Hebrew term there is devak, and it means like to attach, to stick, to cleave. Um, the modern Hebrew word for glue is devak. Everybody say devak. <laughs> it's the same. It's the same word, hey. So it's like Adam and Eve are just glued together. They are really stuck together, you know, with uh, crazy glue. Maybe you could say. So uh, anyway, that that term is also used in um, the Hebrew translations of the Brit Chadashah in uh, in certain instances. Um, for instance, in First Corinthians chapter six, verses fifteen to seventeen, you could say this is uh, this is Shaul's drash 
on this passage. This is what he has to say. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Mashiach? Shall I then take away the members of Mashiach and make the members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? There's that same term used in the Torah for Adam and Chava, Basar Echad. Um, for he says, the two shall become one flesh. But, this is the kicker, the one who joins himself to the master is one spirit with him. So that's where this becomes so real in our spiritual lives. Like this picture of a married couples coming together, being, being glued together in this strong bond. It's a picture of the relationship that we can have with the master. We can join ourselves to the master on a daily basis. We can experience like a deep bond with Yeshua. Um, we can, we can have our identities merged in Him, um, our inner essence with Him. Uh, we can become a part of Him. He can become like the innermost part of us. It's the idea behind this. And I've, in, in my own uh, contemplative life, I've really been asking Yeshua to teach me lately how that works, what, what that looks like. How can I be like bonding with the Master on a daily basis? How can I be like just submerging myself in Him? You know, how can I be just uh, having Him as like my innermost essence, you know, as pictured in marriage? And uh, that that is an area that I really want to grow in. Not just doing Torah, but being one with Mashiach. Experiencing that union, I, I, I see that as the very, the very heart of, uh, of our spiritual lives. Uh, here, here's the question that Elohim asked Adam, and uh, that maybe he asks humanity on a regular basis. Maybe this is like a cry from his heart. In uh, Genesis 3 verse 9, he says, Where are you? Ayaka. And uh, I wonder if he doesn't cry, his heart doesn't cry out to humanity in that regard today. Where are you? I don't know. What, what, what if he would just kind of pop into your life all of a sudden and just say, where are you once a day? Unexpectedly. Like, where would your mind be at that split second, hey? Woo! I'm telling you, sometimes I'd be like, I am uh, way over there. <laughs> or like, uh, excuse me, just let me get out of wherever I am and then I will answer that question. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, you know, if, if you just want to have a spiritual like uh, practice to try every day on a regular basis, just stop and uh, ask yourself once a day, uh, you know, if you were to ask me where I am right now, what would I say? Or maybe he is asking you right now, where are you? What What, what, what are you saying to him? You know, maybe you could even like, I'm just thinking out loud here. Write it on a sticky note and put it somewhere where you walk past a time or two a day. You know, and just take that as from Him. And uh, maybe that maybe that would give us a, a higher level of spiritual focus. Eh? Let's look at uh, the book of Yaakov, James, together for a couple of minutes here. The first thing I want to point out is that this book should not be called James and uh, this man should not be called James in English. Um, his Hebrew name was Yaakov, which in Greek is, however it is you say, Jacob. And uh, in the other instances in the New Testament where there is a person named Jacob, he's called Jacob, but here, the brother of the master is named James. Can, does anybody know why? Because of King James, yes. Um, King James was not in the Bible, and somebody wanted him in the Bible, so they just decided to change Jacob to James. If you ask me, that is taking unwarranted license with the scriptures. So you can remember, this guy's name was Jacob. His name was Yaakov. It's a good Jewish name. Whereas James is uh, not, it's not a Jewish name at all. 
Um, as much as I like, you know, I know some guys named Jim, and I really like guys named Jim, right? But uh, it's just, it's, it's just, I, I, I'm pointing that out not to be a stickler, right? But to point out that, like, when it comes to tradition, tradition is very strong. And people will often bend the rules, they will cover over truth, they will go along with the flow, not to, you know, kind of, don't rock the boat, just to preserve tradition. So, you know, we have 500 years of calling the master's brother the wrong name, because some translators did it that way, uh, whatever, over four centuries ago. That, that disturbs me. I have to admit, that disturbs me. Um, but you know what, like, human tendency, we can see that in all areas of religion. Um, Anyway, Yaakov, what does he call these early believers in the very opening lines of his epistle? Um, he calls them the 38,000 denominations of Christianity, correct? Uh, he calls them Christians around the world, correct? Okay, I'm just checking here. What does he call them to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad? Why did he call them the 12 tribes? <laughs> Maybe because they were? The 12 tribes of what? the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. I know, I think I think that would be a verse to just sit and like meditate on for a whole day and just let it filter into our consciousness that he doesn't here call them denominations of Christianity. He doesn't call them Christians even. He calls them the 12 tribes. Yeah. James 1 verse 1. So they were scattered and he, yeah, so you're right, so they were scattered historically and that also indicates that he saw those early Messiah congregations as being like a fusion of them coming back together. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna probably go about five more minutes here and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, I love it. In 1 verse 19, he says that, uh, it's a good idea to be quick to Shema. Quick to Shema. You know, when you think about it in the terms of Shemaing, it just kind of gives it added meaning. Um, a very practical way to be quick to Shema is to learn to just ask questions. You know, care about people, ask questions and, and listen. That's a good practical application in a conversational context. Um, 1 verse 21, he talks about receiving the word that has been implanted. And uh, that's the same term that we use when we bless after the Torah readings who has implanted eternal life within us. Yeah, I think there's a connection there, because Yaakov, of course, he was very familiar with those the, those blessings. He said them every Shabbat um, for the Torah readings when it was his turn to read. I love his analogy, too. We already t- touched on that. But in saying that the, the Torah is a mirror... So if you want, if you want like an analogy for what Torah study looks like, the best analogy you'll have is gazing into a mirror. Why is that? Because when you gaze into the mirror, you see what you look like. You see who you are. You know, when you look into your own eyes, you can see something deep in yourself. Um, when we read the Torah, we're getting a picture of who we really are in Mashiach. Um, we are seeing the stuff we're really made of, um, on a spiritual level. And of course he goes on to say, you know, don't just gaze into the Torah and then walk off and forget it. Go, go and uh, do the stuff in the Torah. And uh, I, uh, I'm quite sure he was talking about the Torah there. Um, here's something interesting. For some reason, Yaakov thought that uh, he felt a need to qualify the term Torah. He talked about the complete Torah that brings freedom. Did you notice that? That tells us something. It tells us that he must have thought that there was a version of the Torah out there that was incomplete and that didn't bring freedom. Yeah. And uh, you know what? That's still true today. 
All Torah, let's say, isn't the same. There is a complete Torah through Messiah, based on the New Covenant, that brings freedom, as it's, as it's communicated in the Holy Spirit in a life-giving sense. And then there's also an incomplete Torah <laughs> that can bring the opposite of freedom. And uh, I think it's smart to discern between the two. 2 verse 2. This is how it reads in my translation. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. Uh, guess what the Greek term there for assembly is? Yes, synagogue. Uh, it's the Strong's Greek word 4864, Uh There's about 60 times where this term is used in the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And in all of them, they're translated synagogue, except for here. Yeah. Seems like there's some type of agenda to cover up the fact that Jacob saw these gatherings of believers, whom he identified as the 12 tribes of Israel, as gathering in synagogues. That's kind of cool, though. Stop and think about it. We're in a synagogue right now. Biblically, we are in a synagogue. Christians around the world, when they meet in a church... What they don't know is they're actually meeting in a synagogue. <laughs> According to James 2 verse 2, you know. I, I, I like that. 2 verse 10 is a verse that has been highly misinterpreted. Um, 2 verse 10, he says, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. What's the pop interpretation you've heard of this verse? The pop one that I've heard is, well, see, you know, if you even break one commandment, you're breaking the whole thing. So just don't even bother doing any of it. Don't even try. How many of you, how many of you have heard that? Yeah, that, 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 you know what, that is like the only way I've heard that verse interpreted. But when you read it, that is not his point. What he was saying there is like, guys, what does he say in verse 12? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty, the Torah that brings freedom. There's a big difference between, mer- being, between being like mercy-oriented and judgment-oriented, isn't there? There's two more like very Hebraic things that pop up here. 2 verse 20, 2 verse 19 he says that you believe that God is one. You do well. <laughs> he's, he's referencing the Shema there, hey? You believe that he's a Chad. It's like all of a sudden when you start saying the Shema on a daily and a weekly basis, you understand what he's talking about. Um, and then two verses later he says, Wasn't Abraham our father? Wasn't Avraham Avinu justified by work? So we, we see here again that Yaakov saw all believers like around the world as, as having a common forefather in the faith. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.